Schools and teachers are becoming increasingly conscious of the role of education in advancing social progress. However, searching discussions around justice and equity are often fragmented from reflection on the moral and spiritual education of children and youth. What is the relationship between moral education and social progress? My name is Laura Friedman, and this is A Public Discourse, a podcast by the Office of Public Affairs of the Baha'i Community of Canada. This is the fifth episode of our series, A Vision of Oneness, inspired by the centenary of the passing of Abdu'l-Baha, a central figure in the Baha'i faith who devoted his life to promoting the faith of his father. When he visited Montreal in 1912, Abdu'l-Baha gave a series of public talks in which he emphasized the importance of education among other themes. He also talked about the kind of education that children require, that is, both spiritual and scientific. While upholding the importance of science and technical education, he also warned against a strictly material view of education. There is a need, he said, for systematic training and education in schools and colleges until one's mind has awakened and unfolded to higher realms of thought and perception. Intellectual and spiritual education, Abdu'l-Baha asserted, is essential for social progress. So to reflect on the theme of education and social progress, we are joined today by Eric Farr and Anne Snyder. Welcome, Eric and Anne. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like to invite you to introduce yourselves. Can we start with Anne? Sure. Uh, Anne Snyder. I am the editor-in-chief of Comet Magazine, which is a Canadian journal, although it serves all of North America, and our tagline is Public Theology for the Common Good, and I have some exposure to the character conversation and questions of character formation, so just very glad to be here today. It's great to have you here. Thank you for joining. And Eric? Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm Eric Farr, and I'm currently a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, the Department for the Study of Religion, uh, and have worked for a number of years in various Baha'i-inspired uh, educational programs. Wonderful. So I'd like to begin with you, Anne. You have written in recent years about the role of character in a process of social renewal. I wonder if I could ask you to start by describing the meaning of the term character and how it finds expression in educational processes. Sure, I'll give it a go. So um, it's quite difficult to define a lot of the time, um, in part because it's such an integrated part of who we are as human beings, in part because it's dynamic and it's at once part of our own identity, but also very much shaped and formed by forces beyond ourselves. And in part because, to your, I think, introductory point, we do live in a time where it feels like any normative declaration of what the good is is very easily politicized and under contention debatable. We can maybe get into that in this conversation. But all of that sort of caveat aside, I guess I would define it simply and just say, I think of character as a set of dispositions to be and do good that is engraved on a person in a few different ways um, by strong family attachments that teach you what to love and how to love well, by regular habits that ingrain small acts of self-control, um, by teachers or role models who personify excellence and inspire emulation, uh, by religious instruction sometimes on honest, courageous, compassionate living, 
through institutions that establish standards for good conduct and mentors who inculcate kind of concrete ways to execute that conduct by reading literature, experiences of struggle, positions of responsibility, um, and just the blessings and demands of enduring commitments. So, you know, the habits of character tend to grow best in contexts that are nurturing, um, that are orderly and predictable to some degree, but also have clear yet grace-infused feedback mechanisms and always some inspiring ideal in view. So we, you know, we could go through a lot of traits. I mean, I have some favorites, but I don't want to hog up all the time. You know, you could look at the fruit of the spirit or, you know, I think about generosity and hospitality and graciousness and humility, um, lifelong learning, taking responsibility for your own mistakes, the ability to discern sort of qualities of character in others, you know, one who forgives and seeks forgiveness and a whole variety of other virtues and aptitudes. And some would say today sort of certain soft skills, um, um, I think they're all part of the composite of a whole integrated person of character. That's a very comprehensive and holistic view around character. And um, I'm just wondering how you think it finds expression in educational processes. The most kind of impressive and transformational educational settings in which I have found students from like early childhood all the way up through university age or stage, you know, when I found students enter a certain kind of way and leave a different way, uh, and that different was for the good, they just tended to be those environments that had a profound understanding of moral transgression as the breaking of relationship. So that, I think that definition, just understanding morality as fundamentally embedded in a relational reality, first and foremost, uh, creates a certain culture and a certain way of understanding the person and the nature of grace and the nature of growth um, that was always really important in the in the most beautifully formative educational settings. I think institutions or schools that understand the role of desires in shaping us and guiding us, um, that we sort of are what we love. And also schools that see pluralism and difference as a healthy challenge and are not a not scared of it, sort of a healthy, even friction device that if it's kind of contained or canopied in the right way um, might enable people to grow into such aptitudes as empathy and cross-cultural agility and the ability to see certain transcendent goods in a wide range of cultural clothing, I guess, for lack of a better better metaphor. Um, it's just sort of training people to have the ability to be a border stalker and demonstrate boundary crossing care that you don't have to love just your own kind. I love what you said about the need to have these safe spaces where people can develop and explore and nurture their character. So speaking of these environments and these healthy environments, I'm going to turn it to Eric. So Eric, you've worked extensively with Baha'i inspired community-based youth education programs. And you're also looking at the role of religion and secularism in Canadian schooling in your PhD studies. So what do you think schools can learn from these extracurricular education programs when it comes to fostering moral and spiritual education in a diverse society? Yeah, I really appreciate that question. Yeah, you know, when I reflect on the, the public education system, sometimes I'm just kind of astounded that it exists at all. Um, you know, the extension, the extension of education and schooling to so many young people throughout the world is really kind of a unique uh, and signal achievement of modernity. And there's so many um, teachers and administrators that I know, my friends, colleagues, mentors, uh, that just dedicate their lives to, to this enterprise of, of uh, building up new, you know, fresh human beings. <laughs> 
But having said that, I think there are certainly things that public schools can learn from the various, um, you know, efforts to educate young people um, outside of the public system, many of which Anne just mentioned. Um, I think we need to be learning all together, essentially. And most fundamentally, you know, I think we all need to think about what we understand the child and the youth to be, you know, uh, what constitutes the whole of the person that education enterprises direct their attention to. And, you know, across the educational landscape, we can see many competing visions of the human person uh, vying for the student's attention and allegiance. So is the student primarily a future citizen who has to be kind of trained to participate effectively in the spaces and processes that sustain democratic life? Is she primarily a worker who has to gain skills and knowledge to participate in the labor force and contribute to the national economy? You know, there's many other kinds of models of, of the person, and, and they all kind of capture something true about what it is to live in a society. But do they kind of go all the way down? You know, the youth, I don't think, is simply the sum of their accomplishments, for example, or the sum of their academic potential or their deficiencies, or the kind of collection of identities that they have, no matter how deeply felt or real those are. Um, and I think this, when we try and think about kind of sort of where does character reside in the person, this is where language that, you know, has traditionally come from religion or spiritual traditions can be really useful in trying to describe this, these aspects of a person that kind of transcend their material life. You know, in many of the educational efforts that I've been a part of, we talk about um, spiritual qualities. So these features of a, a person's life and character that aren't reducible to any sort of material output or physiological or psychological state, and that grant them, you know, a kind of inborn nobility. Um, these are their capacity to love and to, to, to sacrifice for, for others, for the well-being of others, or for kind of immutable, beautiful principles. Uh, to exercise wise discernment in their choices, um, to overcome deeply ingrained prejudices. You know, these are the kind of qualities that it's not that you either have them or you don't have them. They're kind of within us, and they can be developed. They can be nurtured. They can be the object of of a life of striving. So, I think when we think about uh, you know what a child is, then we have to think how that vision of what a child is can creates a vision for what we expect them to do in their lives, uh, you know, for themselves, for their families, for their communities, for their country, for humanity as a whole, you know, what kind of character must they develop and what should they do with it? <laughs> and then what kind of formation is required to develop these qualities? And at this time in our collective history as a human race, when we kind of, for the first time ever, we can sort of see ourselves as a human race. We can, we can, we develop a sort of planetary consciousness. We are one human people on a single planet. Uh, and yet these kind of these threats that we've sort of we've sort of been pointing at or hinting at in our comments, these threats of polarization, tribalism, the kind of the record essence of longstanding prejudices and a kind of pervasive apathy or d d disillusionment, discouragement. So I think in our educational efforts and we think about character, we kind of need to move beyond a vision of sort of moral mediocrity, <laughs> you know, an, an approach to character that attaches itself to sort of ephemeral material pursuits and, and kind of seeks mainly just to not harm others. Um, I think what we need in this generation of young people are moral characters that, uh, that really shine, that shine out kind of like a light on a mountaintop. You know, a kind of spiritual and moral and intellectual excellence 
that that is so powerful you can almost see. And it's not the kind of thing that it manifests itself in sort of grand gestures or uh, certainly not in any kind of performance and doesn't attract individual accolades necessarily. Uh, but it's a kind of moral heroism, I think, a kind of new moral heroism for this day that manifests itself in these sort of everyday, daily um, strengthening of community ties that allows us to sort of overcome seemingly insurmountable obstacles and, and great personal sacrifice um, and, and kind of do that with great personal sacrifice, not overcome personal sacrifice. And then I think just maybe the last thing is if we see these kind of two moral impulses in our lives um, that kind of propel and give shape to our characters, this vision of who we can become and what we can contribute, how we can kind of build up the community and society around us. And the educational programs that I've been a part of, we're learning how these two fundamental dimensions of a young person's moral purpose can find expression and, I mean, really can only be developed in a life of service um, to others and to a community. And it's in service and trying to contribute to the material and spiritual prosperity of a place, you know, with actual people living in it <laughs> that were called to develop these qualities where they're tested and you know, forged in the fires of challenges. So, you know, public schools may not be able to adopt all of these approaches or this language, and they, they maybe shouldn't at this stage, but I think we can learn together about kind of an expanded conception of the human person befitting of, of, of our day. It's interesting that you say they shouldn't, maybe right now is not the time, but I look forward to the day <laughs> where also in the public school system, we are addressing this spiritual and material progress. So, and, and here in the West, we're in this predominantly secular context, I'd say, and to talk about moral and spiritual education will be a non-starter for some people. It might strike them as sectarian or ideological. And so, and how do you think we can approach this topic in a way that is inviting to a, a broad cross-section of society? What do you think is the kind of language that we need to help people to talk about qualities, attitudes, and the virtues that we want our education and school systems to cultivate in young people? That's a good question. It's sort of the million-dollar question <laughs> of the moment, I would say. Um, so it's a hard one. Right. Um, I love everything Eric was saying, and I think it is sort of precedes the my answer. Um, he, he was reminding me of something actually that my husband likes to say, who also is a, a journalist and sometimes feels like his role is to translate between the spiritual sacred world into a very secular material world. And so he says something like, um, when he's trying to persuade folks who do not believe in anything real in the invisible realm, that everything has to be data and quantified. And he'll, he'll say, you know, I just want to invite you to consider that we each have, whether you believe in God or not, whether you believe in the spiritual realm or not, that there is some part of each of us that has no size or weight or color or shape, but it gives each of us infinite value and dignity. Um, and that rich people don't have more of this than poor people. And that, you know, slavery is not just an attack on a bunch of physical molecules. Rape is not just an assault on a bunch of physical molecules. They're all, they're both an attempt to obliterate another person's soul. And I think something about that word soul, which I, I think is slightly different from character, but they're very, very interrelated and you could almost treat them as synonyms gives us our fundamental equality. Um, 
and moral responsibility um, and our source sort of sources of desire. So I'm kind of bringing uh, someone I talk to every day into this just because <laughs> Eric kind of sparked that as he was trying to grope for language to, so, so forgive me. But I, and I say that in the context of this question of what kind of language can you use? And I view this as a translation task. I view it as a, just like threading a needle through such a suspicious era we're all in. I think you know, our politics is so morally loaded. It's like our new religion and it's very unhealthy, I would argue. Um, but I have found, not that I have been always very successful, but having written a book about character a number of years ago that was very much for a pluralistic, widely diverse, largely secular crowd readership, I learned that if I used a language that was fundamentally relational, that like saw relational health as like a major telos or end towards which moral character can is motivated towards that was very helpful people understood like we're in this crisis of solidarity as a society we're very siloed um we seem to have lost the ability to get out of ourselves our relationships are crumbling at the most fundamental level something is amiss i think just like locating the cause of character there as like part of the stakes of a relational reality has been helpful uh, because suddenly people get motivated um, to hear maybe firmer facts about weighing different goods and good and evil and all that than they otherwise would. So, so, so I would say just like addressing the fundamental relationality of it. I would also say um, a language that is very gentle, but also honest about the realities of struggle and hardship and suffering in all of all of our lives, which of course we all go through at different stages to different degrees in very different ways. Um, but I think, you know, I when I would ask people years ago writing this book, everyone from very fancy people leading large organizations to people who were custodial staffers and stay-at-home moms and neighbor, you know, I would ask like hundreds of people, how is your, just tell me a story. Like, how would you say your character has been shaped? And they would invariably tell a story that usually, I mean, almost always conform to a three-part pattern. They would mention a loving authority figure in their lives that had really made a difference and had provided some example of how they wanted to be uh, themselves one day. They, they would highlight an experience of struggle or suffering that kind of shaped shaped them and sort of built both the spine they have now, but also left some scars that are inextricable from who they are and how they exist in the world as healers or, or whatever. Um, and then the third thing was awakening to a context greater than themselves. And I, those three ingredients were always a part of how they described sort of the gem tumbler of character formation over and over and over in a lifetime. So I think a language that is like leads with compassion there's something there that then leads to these deeper moral questions that exist in all of our lives, dilemmas we face, trade-offs, that is a doorway in, and I think is widely resonant because the human experience has pain. And and then the third thing I would say is a language that doesn't pull punches when it comes to articulating a very high vision of the good, the good society, the good community, the beloved community, the even something like I hate to say a good family, but like 
to say there is such a thing as like an ideal that is beautiful and that isn't about being joyless or starchy or goody goody or G rated, but is about flourishing for all. And when people are selfless and when people are responsible and, you know, these individual character traits are fully alive and fully mature, that leads to this like greater sense of sort of shalom and deep peace and freedom. Can I add something? Yeah, absolutely. I just, I just love that. I mean, it was such a helpful, yeah, reflection. And I think one of the things that it made me think of is we think about the language of character, um, both connected to what you were saying about its the, kind of the uh, relational nature of character, and also just in your description of your process. I also think about the role of conversation. Um, you know, the role of actually conversing and talking with people, reflecting, holding a vision of the good as an object of collective inquiry and, and, and conversation seems like just such a crucial part to our, our efforts to, to build ourselves and build a better, better world, you know. I mean, everything that you said, well, you had me sold on storytelling because I'm, I'm also a filmmaker. So it's all about story <laughs> and this thing about character being contagious, how we can all affect each other. And this relational language, as you said, is, it seems like an invitation to build bridges to invite us to see that there is no other. And, and there's something about the commonality around the experience of people's journey into growth, that you said these three things that you described around being in a starting point, going through a struggle, building this backbone, and then that results in this recognition of a collective experience or a, a, an experience of oneness in our humanity. So we've been so far talking about education from this individual standpoint. So what kind of person is being educated? However, um, there's another aspect to this, which is about the society we want to create. So just going up one level higher. So Eric, where do you see the connection between education and social progress? Yeah, I think that this is uh, an important piece to add to the, to the conversation. So education systems and programs, they're concerned in many ways with the development, the formation of a particular kind of person, and also the formation of a particular kind of society. They're animated by visions of the person and the people. So then in the same way where we're, we're thinking about the kind of person we hope to be, we hope to cultivate, we hope to nurture, we need to reflect deeply on the, what is the characteristics of the kinds of societies that we hope to build, the kind of people that we hope to be. You know, what does it mean to be a people? And what are the boundaries of the people, in a sense? Uh, the notion of the people in political and educational discourse has historically only permitted a kind of narrow participation of certain groups in the construction of a national community uh, and identity. And even now, uh, although I think most people would say that no group or individual should be left out of the society building project, there remains a tendency, I think, to, to try and elicit participation through different kinds of domination, manipulation, uh, or a feeling of, you know, we could really create a wonderful society if, if these people would just sort of go away or, or join our team or, or whatever. So when I think of a, of a people and the kind of the kind of people that that's required for the needs of this this particular time in history, it's a people that quite literally uh, needs the participation and contribution of every every person, and not just a kind of passive participation that is reducible to kind of like the casting of a ballot, say, but active participation in the construction of new patterns of community life. Um, and such a people has never existed <laughs> before. 
certainly not in the scale that's now required. And so when I think when we think about the relationship between education and social progress, it's really to me about how we need to take this redefined collective of humanity as an urgent um, object of learning. So when we approach the education of youth, just a, kind of a couple thoughts building off that idea, when we approach the education of youth, we can't approach them as, as islands. And I mean by this, not, not only that they're not isolated, atomized individuals, but they also aren't you know, some separate category of human being that uh, can learn and act apart from the web of, of relationships, as Anne was saying, that, that they're embedded in. They are members of families, members of communities. And so education and trying to nurture the development of collectives needs to find ways to, to reinforce these ties of unity that bind together a people. Also, social progress uh, doesn't take place, I don't think, simply by empowering a bunch of individuals. A people is more than the sum of its individual persons. There are certain kinds of collective, you could even call them like civilizational capacities that belong to a people. Think about various aspects of culture, different patterns of, of social life, uh, the arts, um, institutions, um, even advances in science. They're not just, they don't just rely on kind of an accumulation of individual capacities. So then how do we how do we learn the virtues of peoplehood? Um, how do we learn to tap into the, the kind of vast reservoirs of power that lie in collective volition and unified action? And I think that it's at the level of the community that is uh, a community in the sense of a geographic, like a limited geographical space where you live and you go about your daily life as a vital space to develop these capacities. If you try to, to learn about fostering universal participation at of a whole society made up of tens or hundreds of millions of people. It's, it's kind of too much to, to bear, <laughs> but we can learn about fostering participation on our block, on our street, in our neighborhood. Uh, and communities in this sense can become communities of inquiry, uh, centers of learning, so to speak, uh, where we learn about and share and socialize the growing knowledge of, of, of how to build a kind of broad-based participatory community life. And then just finally, connected to some of Anne's comments about, about this sort of lofty vision that can inspire uh, moral striving, striving of character, is I think we need to think about what's capable of grounding this shared understanding, this shared identity. Uh, you know, we live at a time when we need to both reinvigorate and advance these capacities of community living, while at the same time developing kind of a broader allegiance, a broader-based fellow feeling as human beings on a shared planet uh, that also requires its own uh, civilizational forms and capacities to come into being. Um, so I think we find, you know, even on smaller scales, but especially at this distinctive point in history, that a kind of a commitment or a shared identity that's, you know, rooted in a political allegiance or a nation or you know, and ethnicity, these are insufficient resources to maintain the deep ties of peoplehood that are required for this age and, and even, you know, stifle and undermine and damage it. Uh, they can't sort of withstand the tests and challenges that seek to splinter and divide and discourage us. So we need to reach deeper. And again, this has kind of been traditionally, this has been one of the roles of religion to create communities out of previously antagonistic, even warring groups. Um, and maybe religion will play this role again uh, in some sort of kind of unexpected spiritual resurgence or revolution. 
Um, but regardless, education, I think, needs to be attentive to, to these needs and, and these virtues of peoplehood, of collectives, and fa- find ways of, of learning and, and talking about uh, ties that are durable and, and flexible enough to, to hold us together at this particular time. Lofty vision indeed. <laughs> um, it all sounds really beautiful. And um, thank you so much for sharing that. I'm going to turn it to Anne. And in much of your writing, including in your new book called Breaking Ground, Charting Our Future in a Pandemic Year. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. You have tried to reconcile perspectives, move past ideology, and you've given new expression to old ideas. In fact, in the introduction to your book, you wrote that the pandemic gave us an opportunity to recalibrate tired cultural values and ways of thinking and to renew particularly fragile spheres like education with a recovered moral purpose oriented to our actual makeup as human beings and towards serving the needs of the commons. I wondered if you could elaborate on this at all. What do you think are some of the unifying spiritual principles and cultural values that can help us to renew our approaches to education in the future? Well, I fear I may be repeating myself in this episode and more importantly, just amening everything Eric is saying, although I won't be as eloquent. but I'll say just a few things. And I I probably like everybody, though I, I was involved in this book. Um, it's really an anthology of people much smarter than me um, evaluating what is this pandemic and this broader time of sort of layered crisis, I would say, accelerating longer standing things that were never quite right with normal, revealing about our society and about ourselves. I think yeah, it's. Uh, I'm usually very hopeful these days. I find myself more worried. Um, but that honest confession out of the way. <laughs> um, I, I just a few, I guess, unifying values, principles, spiritual, cultural, um, especially vis-a-vis education. I think we'd all, or most people I know, uh, even if they'd express the means and the styles, perhaps at odds with each other most people I know would like to restore exactly what Eric is describing, like the fundamental human, humanizing whole person relational aspects to a full education. I mean, to educate historically over centuries and centuries meant to form, you're formed whole, holy. And that was part of the role of education. It wasn't to replace what parents were doing. It wasn't to, but it was to expose you through the social life, through literature, through poetry, through the sciences, through all of it to um, this and through encounter with strangers and with friends to the sort of full flowering of what it is to be a glorious human being, <laughs> gloriously endowed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of our education for a variety of reasons over the last century and a half, you know, just decided to become more technocratic, very utilitarian. Um, and at the end of the day, that does, whether you know it or not, wear you down to feel like you're just a cog in a wheel of a civilization that may or may not need you, but you're largely expendable. Um, And these are subtle things, but they become profound in terms of how they shape the way we teach, the way we design school cultures, rhythms, et cetera. And I think there's just something in this notion of like humanism at its best that we're all longing to see restored in 
you know, where we send our kids, what it is to be loved, was what is it to be tutored into inspiring heroic ideals that Eric so well beautifully just painted. You know, this is a controversial thing to say, and this may be reflecting a little, I guess, my own cultural coordinates. But deep down, I think because we don't love conflict, I think we'd all like to be better at dealing with difference um, and engaging difference well and learning the art and skills of seeing other people accurately and deeply and and in turn being deeply seen and understood. I think we may not all articulate that. We all feel threatened these days and want to go to our tribe. But I think when we have experiences of surprise, magical, aha moments of being enriched and widened by someone who's extremely different from us, and we give the patience to learn from and in turn you know, be served by and to serve, I think we all desire that kind of formation and exposure young in our schools and to cultivate environments that somehow figure out a way to engage deep difference in a way that doesn't make any person feel threatened in his or her identity, standing, membership in the community, sense of horizon, uh, but rather enriches all of that and helps me understand my roots maybe better in a way that pairs sort of a healthy critical element, but also with a grace that says, you know, I'm part of the redemption story of that line or, or whatever. So, and then I, I think the, the last thing I'll say, and this gets to I think some of Eric's emphasis on the arts and your emphasis on story, I do think beauty is a very big piece. And so what's the role of beauty in gently coaxing young people into embracing a kind of moral realism that understands the world as a broken place and we're all actually a part of, we play a role in that. Um, But we also have full agency to contribute in some way and try to shift the rudder of the oars a little bit. And I think somehow recovering a very rich understanding of beauty, aesthetically, musically, moral beauty, sort of the beauty of paradox when it comes to truth, when you discover it, I think all of this would go a long way. And it may sound like a luxury, but I think if we actually baked it into our education from a very young age, um, all of it would go a long way to sort of healing what a lot of divides that actually feel kind of false to me that are separating us today, especially in those early growing up years, to sort of get us out of ourselves and our need to find identity within and instead to look for it outside of ourselves um, and in the face of others. Thank you for bringing this idea of, of beauty. I think we all, as human beings, are attracted to beauty. It's just a natural attraction that's part of our makeup. We yearn for it. And speaking of it and bringing it to light through the arts and different educational contexts can be this source of connection for us. And so Eric, building on Anne's comments, and and here come a bunch of questions. So feel free to ask (laughs) me to repeat. But um, I'll start with, where do you see opportunities for social change in the future? And where do you think it is possible to change education within the school system? And lastly, to what extent do communities of people become protagonists of educational processes, both inside and outside of schools? So I know that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to, I'll try to offer some reflections. Um, yeah, I mean, I think part of what I think about when I hear those questions is, it's kind of how do we have to rethink maybe. Um, the role that education plays in our society. Um, You know, where do we see education and knowledge and understanding taking a a central role? 
for some reason in our culture, you know, and this is like the, the fruit of a long process of different kinds of societal differentiation and specialization, but we've come to sort of connect education really, really tightly to the school and to the point where kind of schooling and education come to be seen as more or less synonymous. Where when you ask someone like, oh, where, where, where did you get your, or not where did you get your education? But uh, you ask someone about someone's education, they usually say, oh, I went to this place. This is where I went to school. <laughs> but education, when we think about it in the way that we've been talking about it in this conversation, it's, it's really just this vast, hugely important spiritual enterprise that, that every human being undergoes. And that I think we would do well in our, in our culture as we strive towards progress to consider the role of education in the various dimensions of our life. So what role does education play in the life of a family? Um, how does kind of knowledge and the sharing of knowledge, the generation of knowledge, how does this actually play a central role in, in our immediate families and our extended families? How does it shape the life of a community that sees actually, you know, one of its central objectives, one of the things that it's pursuing is, is the generation of knowledge and the sharing of knowledge and kind of the discovery of, of the knowledge that exists within um, a population. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, that essentially that's what I would, what I would want to think about is how, <laughs> is how knowledge and learning and education can be infused into the different aspects of our life. How do religious communities also see themselves as in a humble posture of learning and adopt that uh, in the day-to-day -day lives of their communities. Because when I think you, you disassociate it from that, then, then we actually can, you know, we can imagine the proliferation of all kinds of educational programs that complement and, and work in collaboration with the school system. Um, and I think that that is also, you know, the, the public school systems, they, they're kind of, they're, they're kind of stuck in some ways within the, the constraints of, you know, their policies and, and different kinds of, uh, yeah, restrictions. But, but if we can all sort of learn together and see ourselves as pursuing a common project of education and formation, then I think we would, we would see a much more educated in the true sense, uh, society of persons and, and of people, you know. I feel like Eric's going to save our country, save the world. <laughs> everything you're saying, it's, uh, yeah, very timely. Yeah. And you too, Anne. Everything that you've said has really been inspiring and enlightening and given a lot of hope and just created a lot of space for exploration and flexibility and openness and invitation. So for my final question, which is always my favorite one because it leaves me feeling so hopeful in general, so what gives both of you hope and inspiration for the future of education for young people? Who would like to go first? Anne. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't sure. Okay, I'm happy to. Um, I think we're in a deep remaking time. And I'm seeing this a lot. My contacts now are more in the higher education world in the U.S. where there's just huge questions around the meritocracy and how do we shift business models. And so I'm very encouraged by some like pretty bullish experiments that are going on there. But I think in a similar way, they're happening at younger levels. Um, and the few things I'll say is I do think, one, we are all getting wiser about technology. Um, I am seeing more schools be more careful 
about just immediately embracing the latest technological advance or device and sort of having a bit more of a principled, prudential question of, okay, is this latest thing, this app, this tool, this digitization, is this going to promote healthy relationships in our environment and individual skill? Or is it going to make those goods more difficult? And if so, we have to put some limits around them. So I think both parents and teachers and principals and so on are just uh, not quite so naively like gobbling it all up as like one linear line forward of like human progress. I think they are seeing that there are bad effects and um, are figuring out how to not be Luddites, but draw a healthy boundary. So that's encouraging that we're just evolving as we've had this shocking speed of change in our world um, that we are trying to adapt and figure out how to still be masters of the tools and not let them master us. People are more attentive, just period, to the environments that shape us and the ways in which the atmospheric things, like this sounds very shallow, but I actually don't think it is, like warmth and and color and a variety of rhythms in a day and your rituals and safety, again, that's that feeling, that that is so important in a home. And actually, it's so important for ability to learn and to be in the right posture to learn and the right posture to grow. And so what are the things we can learn about the importance of atmosphere that we may have gotten so familiar with in the confines of our homes in this time where all of life is happening inside four walls um, and transfer that to school, like not not only school, other places too, but I'm just hearing teachers in particular be like, oh, I'm, you know, as parents describe their homeschooling techniques and, oh, you know, maybe the school environment could have more like sofas in our hallways and feel more like a living room or we could involve more cooking and in school kitchens and more music and more craft and you know maybe maybe we could just harness the power of atmosphere as not just a decorative thing but as quite powerful for the position and posture kids are then in to really be alive to all the exciting things that and when you're young usually happen unconsciously as you grow and learn uh, what are the things you could cross-pollinate uh, from the household into the school hold or, or just into the school building. So that's kind of, I'm encouraged by that. I'll be watching that cross-sector transfer for lack of a better way of putting it um, with a lot of interest in the next five years or so. That's That gives me so much hope and um Thank you for sharing that. And Eric? Yeah. Oh, that, yeah, that was really lovely to hear about. And I especially like this kind of the, the emphasis on um, the power of certain kinds of environments and how they can sort of unleash and release, you know, the capacities of young people and people in general. When I think about what, what gives me hope and inspiration, and it's true, it's, it's a time when that has maybe been tested more than uh, usual, but... You know, I just think about the young people that are in this world and the young people that I've had the opportunity to, to get to know and um, work with. Um, there's a story that sticks out to me. I was in a neighborhood in Toronto and been working with a group of 12 to 14 year olds for for a couple of years. And we were always trying to kind of grow the group and, and invite other of their friends to, to, to participate in this one neighborhood. And so we went up to uh, one of the friends of one of these, these young people and invited them and kind of explained this group and how we tried, you know, we were trying to, you know, develop our, our own capacities, but also really serve the, serve the community. And 
this, uh, this young person we approached just gave the most like eloquent uh, expression of total disillusionment <laughs> that I'd ever heard from a 12 year old. It's just like, this will never work. You're never going to be able to do this. No one is going to want to come and participate in this. And I was thinking, oh boy, how do I, you know, how do I respond to this? But then one of the participants in the group, this, this 12 year old, just kind of looked him in the eyes and said, I don't know how you can say that. There's a group of 15 of us. We meet every week. We're getting to know the challenges that are in our community. We clean up the park once a week. Every Thursday, we have a, a, a class where we teach, we bring together younger children and work with them. And he just he just had this, this confidence and warmth and sincerity. It wasn't like he was, it wasn't a recruitment pitch. He was just, he was kind of, he was just expressing how he felt, and 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 so that kind of clarity of purpose, um, and confidence, and and purity of of these of these young people in the world, and it's not like young man was was unique. Like there's there's so many young people like this. So I think it's the the, the hope that I have comes from them, and and from the effect that a certain kind of environment that allows them to flourish. Uh, can release among youth. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's a really beautiful story. And I hope that uh, it gives our listeners also a glimpse into how, how simple it can also be to reframe these maybe these uh, feelings of cynicism or hopelessness, you know? So thank you both for, for sharing all these views and bringing hope to the conversation around the relationship between moral education and material education, spiritual education, and social progress, um, learning about engaging in difference and the importance of being understood and rethinking the role of education, this power behind storytelling and beauty and recognizing beauty, and this shared experience and uh, longing that we all have to be a whole and full human being and to be able to express this within the context of our families and our community and especially in our schools and educational systems. So thank you both for joining us and hope you have a wonderful day. That was great. Thank you. You have been listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i Faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at opa.baha'i.ca where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.